0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org. Uh,
1: today we're going to be in First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. That's where we'll be this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you didn't bring one this morning, you are in luck. We do have some uh, hardback black pew Bibles there you can find in the seat pockets in front of you. And in those Bibles we will be on page 1016. Um, and so you can turn there to 1 Peter. Once again, it's 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, when you get there, or maybe if and when, uh, if you're able and willing this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to read it. Um, amen. So First Peter 4, starting verse 12. So Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if he begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And yet, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning,
0: everyone. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I want to say uh, welcome this morning, and thank you so much for making us a part of your week, especially if it is your first time here. Um, hopefully, someone shared with you a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to do here at Providence already. Um, this morning, like Eric said, we are continuing our series through the book, uh, the Epistle of First. Peter, and we've been trying to take on uh, these texts from different angles, particularly the ones like this morning, which have to do with suffering, suffering being a major theme that you see throughout the book of 1 Peter. And so we're going to try to do some work here uh, and talking a little bit about suffering in the name of Jesus uh, together when we're faced with trial. So before we jump in, pray with me. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we're so grateful that your word is what anchors us. Your word is where we run for refuge and for truth and for hope. We thank you that your word abides forever, Lord, and it's a lamp into our feet. It is a light into our path that we don't have to guess for what you want for us or from us, but that your word stands forever. And so we do run there this morning together as your people. And Holy Spirit, we pray specifically that you would open the eyes of our heart and the open the, the ears that we have to hear and sense, not not physically, Lord, but spiritually, and help us to, to glean from your word this morning together. Uh, everything that is needed in each individual family, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would provide it and that you would do so by the power of your word, that we could stay faithful in the midst of suffering. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there's six major imperatives that we get that come from this text, and by imperatives, I mean commands. Uh, these commands that are given to us by the apostle Peter on how we, should, we ought to operate as Christians who face down-suffering. Those six that we get from verses 12 through 19 are uh, that we shouldn't be shocked by suffering. Don't be surprised by it. We should rejoice in it, We shouldn't be ashamed of our suffering or of Christ in the midst of our suffering. We should do good, we should glorify God, and trust God. Those are the six that we pick up in these seven verses. And I couldn't help but, as I was reading that and and reading it through, uh, just think how much this kind of mirrors uh, last week and the week before, in that if you're not careful when you first read this, you can kind of write off Peter. Because at first glance, when you think about the hardship and Trial and suffering that's maybe coming your way, or maybe you're currently facing the six things that I just mentioned, almost seem like laughable and it kind of frustrating, maybe at their worst, right? And examples like uh, w- like children suffer um, in in what we would consider minute ways, and yet still they experience it very like powerfully. When I was young, I was a sore loser. I hated to lose, specifically sports games. And now that I've gotten older and I've watched other kids, I see. Uh, that happened as well. And as I've gotten older, it's not like I've liked to lose anymore. It's just that I've changed the way I react to it, right? Some of you are the same way. You know, you still fight with your you know wife over board games. You just, you know, you fight passive aggressively and not as aggressively. But but kids, you, you notice this, uh, you know, losing a game really like just, it's, it's detrimental. And that kind of like lasts all the way up into high school, especially if you really like sports. And I think if you were to use Peter's advice here to your kid, think about this, who really loves to win, when they lose, think about how laughable it becomes. It's like, you know, your, your kid's done with the game, sweating, having just gotten blown out, and you're like, listen, don't be shocked. Do you think you can win them all? It's like, oh, that's very helpful. <laughs> then, you, then you double down on that. You're like, hey, you should really be happy. Rejoice that you lost. <laughs> or how about this one? This one almost feels condescending. You have nothing to be ashamed of don't be ashamed. You're just not that good, right? (laughs) Then they start acting up, right? They start acting misbehavior. What do you say? You better not act like that. You should be acting good. You need to be even better now. You know, you just got to do better, work harder, work harder. And then of course, if you're, if you're a Christian mom or dad, how is how you're acting glorifying God? Have you thought about that son? See these things when you put them into real life it 's like man that's really tough, especially with kids and and if you 're not careful, you can even listen to this from Peter and say like that 's just not reality when you 're really hitting up against the trials and the suffering and so I say all of that to say we do have to recognize that peter's calling us to a certain level of maturity, and that that 's not going to be easy it 's actually kind of difficult Any time you 're going to mature there 's going to be pain because part of what 's being uh, i guess kind of chiseled away at is some of that that uh immature reaction to life and the circumstances of life that has to be chipped away, our more visceral responses. Peter's chief concern seems to be that he wants to fortify these young Christians at a time when their faith would be most likely to be shaken by persecution. And he wants to really strengthen them. And that's going to be tough. Another thing that we have to address before we jump into maybe the minute points is that I, th- I think that there are, as the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, various trials that we face up against throughout our lives. And so there could be many categories for suffering, but I'd like to point out maybe two major categories of suffering, and then maybe highlight one of them that I think this text is particularizing and show how maybe we are under that, at least at some level, even though we might not recognize it. So here's the two categories. The first one is suffering as a christian or suffering in christ this just means that you are experiencing the natural decay of a broken and fallen world and therefore you will suffer in various ways simply because you live in that broken world and yet there's a a particularized addition to that namely that you trust jesus and so you are just suffering normally but as a christian there's these unique ways that you are called to respond to it right okay it's number one category Number two category would be suffering because you are a Christian. This is not suffering in Christ, but this is suffering uh, as a Christian, particularly because you're a Christian. And I think that it's been pointed out that Americans, because we live under a system of of governance that protects our rights to, say, like freedom of worship, uh, that it becomes difficult for us to really understand these admonitions concerning persecution that are in the gospels, you know? And so because of maybe some of our culture, uh, we think it's, it's, it's not as, uh, we're not under that kind of persecution. What am I supposed to do with this? And this text in particular seems to be leaning towards that way. When you suffer for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And of course, it's true on its face to say, us, we culturally haven't experienced that kind of really potent physical violence or persecution. But I want to point something out that's become more apparent to me as the cultural waves have started to kind of storm. Uh, Growing up, I did not grow up in a religious household, but I was in the Bible Belt, so I had some sense of there's going to be an end of this thing happening. If you grew up in the Bible Belt at all, you probably heard at least from someone that you know, things are going to go south, it's all going to go bad, and Jesus is going to show up. So if I had any understanding of the end times at all, it was some vision that Christians were going to be subjected to some infringements upon their ability to worship God freely, and that it was going to be top-down. What I didn't expect is what we're facing today, which is a much more subversive and soft version of persecution to Christians. Christianity is still protected by law for us, and we're free to worship, and thank God for it that we're here today. But for the past 50 or 60 years, the Christian worldview has been marginalized, stigmatized, and maligned in our society. The fundamental tenets of the Christian faith have become anathema to the cultural conversation. If you bring up the fundamentals of the Christian faith in a conversation about everyday life events, you are castigated as intellectually inferior. Silly. Why would you even bring it up? And there are major areas of this kind of stigmatization of the Christian thought that manifest themselves in all of these different institutions in our society. I'll give you a few. In the media in the entertainment industry, in the arts, in the medical field, and most of all in our academies. When Christians pursue careers in these fields, they start to feel the pressure to slowly relinquish their most tightly held Christian beliefs just so they can be taken seriously and just so they cannot be ostracized by their colleagues. If you're a parent in the room and you have a college-age kid, you've probably experienced this. Your college students will begin to relinquish these things just so they wouldn't be ostracized in the classroom, just so they could continue to at least be taken seriously by their friends and by their professors. And I'm not making these things up. There's a lot of studies that go into this. It's not just paranoia. The um, Pew Research Center did a study that said fundamentalists and evangelical Christians are much less likely to be hired for jobs or promoted in certain fields of work because of their religious beliefs. There was another study that said uh, third that 30, there was a, Uh, 31% of adherents said they had a negative connotation, the ones who took this survey, uh, 31% said they had a negative connotation to radical Islam, and 33% said they had a a negative reaction to fundamental Christianity. So I want to propose that as Christians, we are not persecuted by threats of legal recourse or physical violence in our culture, and praise God for that. But we are being marginalized subversively by certain institutions because of our beliefs. And so we are much more willing to abdicate those beliefs out of feelings of fear and shame, which makes it unnecessary for, for things to be taken away from you when you're willing to give them up because it's just so uncomfortable. Now, I want to note here, and I have always try to be careful, I don't want to have a persecution complex, you know, because there's, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. If you become constantly paranoid about persecution, then you're going to make enemies out of the people you're called to love and share the gospel with. So you don't want to fall in that ditch either. And, and the fruit of the spirit from this kind of paranoia and fear really, or it's not the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of it's really harmful. It's like anxiety, anger, resentment. That's what comes from this kind of stuff. Um, so my hope in pointing this out is to avoid that by saying, Hey, this is real. Because if on the other side, if you ignore the climate of soft persecution, one day we're going to wake up and wonder, how did we drift so far? How did we seed so much ground? And how did we end up where we are right now, both personally and in the church? If you're a little bit older, you're probably like, I already am feeling that way. I'm already wondering how things that used to just become, be, be fundamental and normal are no longer fundamental and normal ideas but they're anathema in the public square. And I think that the reason I want to point this out is because it makes this text all the more pertinent, because if you read it and you say, Oh, the fiery trial is going to come on you for the name of Christ. It's like, okay, maybe in the future I'll try to protect my kids. No friends. There's already a soft persecution that exists right now. So as a pastor, I feel obligated to say you have to see it for what it is, both for your sake and for your children so that there can be a preparedness, One pastor in my early ministry told me "Court, the prayer of preparation is much more effective than the prayer of desperation. Or he says it's better. Now I want to say that our God is a merciful God and he answers the prayer of desperation. Like look at the Psalms. But the point is well taken and that is that we ought to be men and women of prayer preparing ourselves for that which we know inevitably will come. Whether that be because we live in a fallen world or whether that be because by the will of God we're going to face up to a moment that's difficult for our faith. Have we prepared for that moment well? And then what I, the question that I want to answer with this text is, what kind of worldview undergirds the type, the type of durable and fearless faith in the face of suffering and hardship that Peter is talking about here with his six admonitions that almost seem comical? Like, what's the worldview that's undergirding that? Because something has to be propping you up to be able to do good in the face of suffering, to trust and honor God in the face of suffering, to rejoice in the face of suffering. These are not normal reactions. They are counterintuitive. So what's actually undergirding that? All right, let's jump in. First Peter chapter four, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as something strange or happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So number one is since Christ has forewarned us of trial and hardship, we can stand in the face of it. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He warned his disciples of this. If, uh, I don't know if any of you husbands feel this way. There are many times where I'm reminded that my wife does parenting better than me, like a lot. And one of them in particular is the way that we both approach the idea of going to the doctor. The way that my wife does this is she forewarns my kids about what might happen so that they're prepared. Now, I'm always like, why are you telling them? I just think it's much easier if like it's all of a sudden I'm like, doc, just do it. Boom, shot. You know, and they're like, ah, you know, they freak out. Now, that would never go well. I don't know why in my mind I think it would go well but I'd rather avoid the kind of like fear on their faces. Whenever you say, yeah, you're probably going to have to get a couple shots. That's my wife just walking them through all the suffering. I'm like, don't tell them about it. And yet that's exactly what the tact that Jesus takes with his disciples. He says, listen, here's the thing. in, in the world, you're going to have a lot of tribulation. Listen, they hated me. They're going to hate you. So he's just walking this through with his disciples. I'm like, Jesus, this is not how you build the church. Just let it happen to them. You know, like tell them the good stuff. That's not what he does. He tells him the hardship and Peter's doing the same thing here saying, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes against you. Now, again, there's a ditch on each side of the roads. Peter seems to be alluding to the fact that we should be preparing in our hearts for suffering without being obsessed by it. And there are two ends of this, isn't there? That's the real fear I have with my kids. I'm like, well, now is Jonas just going to be obsessed about it? Like he can't stop thinking about it. It's going to overtake him. That doesn't keep Jesus or the apostles from warning us about suffering. So we can't say that it's wrong. In fact, it's essential that we do. But we should recognize that, like the early church, after uh, the the early church apostles died and went to be with the Lord, the early church did struggle with this. This is where asceticism came in, where they would literally hit themselves to make sure that they were sufferers like Jesus. You know, they, they had this real obsession with suffering. Peter's not advocating for that. There's a middle ground here, which is that we have our hearts prepared for that which is inevitable but we're not obsessive, we rejoice, we take joy. We thank God for the blessings that come when we're not suffering and we live in joy. Okay, now I wanna turn your attention here to a particular term that we're gonna use for the rest of this portion. And that is, why does Peter, why do you think that he says that we shouldn't be surprised at this term, the fiery trial? I think that's not... uh, That's not an accident. He's not just like, he's not just picking out terms here. I think he's really particular. I know this because Peter's already done a lot of Old Testament allusions. Now I want you to think what Old Testament, if you think with your Old Testament lenses on, what is he getting at? Well, the first one that comes to mind is the, uh, maybe the least obvious one. And that is um, in the Old Testament, the prophets regularly say God is a great refiner And that he puts us into the crucible of suffering, the fire. And that like, if we are vessels of silver, the silver is put into the fire and the impurities of the metal, the dross rise to the surface and our God wipes the dross away until he sees his reflection in us. God is a great refiner and that suffering is a great crucible, a great fire. And that when we go through suffering the impurities and the sin and the darkness that's inside of us get sanctified out by God as he continues to allow what is difficult to, to take out that which is evil. This is like the children of the Israel, uh, children of Israel in the desert, right? Getting Egypt out of them took forty years. Getting them out of Egypt took forty days. <laughs> this is the idea. But there's a second one, and it's probably the most basic one. And you probably already picked it up, taken from Children's Ministry. When you think fiery trial, I hope you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yes, those three guys. Remember them. I think he's alluding to that. The fiery trial, when it comes on you, don't be surprised. So keep your thumb in 1 Peter. Let's turn back to the story. Daniel chapter number three. It'll be up behind me as well. Daniel chapter number three. To catch you up, what has happened so far is the children of Israel have been taken into Babylonian captivity. They've been in bondage. And they've been in there for at least long enough for for men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to rise up in the ranks and become leaders in the Babylonian city. Daniel as well. And yet now the king, Nebuchadnezzar, a very prideful king, has built an image of gold. And he's requiring that every single citizen, when the harp is played or the lyre is played or the music starts, that every citizen will bow down and worship the idol of gold. Now, this presents a major problem for the Israelites who are looking to continue to serve God even in captivity because the law has strictly forbidden them of this kind of idol worship. So we pick up the story as they're faced with this. Check out verse number eight. Chapter three, verse eight, the book of Daniel. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, or every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace And there are certain Jews who have appointed, you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are already, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Okay. So there's so many things to consider here, right, in this story. Well, first, in a moment here, you're going to get the answer. That these two, how they respond. It seems to me these two, these three men did not live in a fantasy world where they thought that this kind of opposition would never come to their doorstep. Now, part of that probably comes from experience. They've already been led away into Babylonian captivity. But I also think part of that is because of their worldview, which was developed in the Pentateuch. It's developed in the very story of God himself when it starts in Genesis with sin entering the world into the garden. Christians, we've talked about this throughout all 1 Peter. We know that in a sinful and fallen world that there are deeply broken and grotesque events that happen and opposition that happens particularly to the things of God and the people of God. That's That's the rule, not the exception. Sometimes we wish that it were the exception, but it's not. Babylon is a a grotesque place, but listen to me on this. In some ways, it's no more grotesque than Rome was, and listen to me, this is going to seem rough, and I'm not saying that it's apples to apples, but in some ways, it's no more grotesque than every society that's ever been, including our own. And that is because human beings that do not honor God or honor him as God will ultimately be given over to their own sinful devices and create even policies and procedures and whole structures that facilitate darkness. And we have to be able to see that for what it is. Now, I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's answer. Check this out. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. The gall. (laughs) We have no need to answer you in this matter. I mean, this guys he's the king. He's the guy. And if you've done any history about Babylonian kings, they are ruthless. The kind that will make shivers go up your spine. I'm talking ruthless. And these three men stood up and said, we don't even have to answer you. But they do. Here's what they say. If this be so, our God whom we serve, he is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Check this out. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is like the utmost courage, right? There's a reason we teach this to our children, and it is because this is ultimate Christian courage on display, they don't live with rose colored glasses but man did they have, were they prepared to give an answer when the time came <laughs> like we can rejoice in all of the good things that god has given us and i encourage you to do so once again not to be obsessive about persecution but we don't need to fall prey to this belief that following jesus looks a lot more like floating down the lazy river and you know and just kind of letting things happen so like it's so nice to follow jesus no it is, going, it is difficult. There are arduous hardships that we face, and we got to be prepared and ready for that. The world is so broken and full of tribulation that we have to see with spiritual eyes so that we can fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons. And that's what happens here. I love that because these men had no intention of bowing, and they were ready when the time came. I also love that they say this. God is able to save us, Here's the faith. He will save us, but if he doesn't, we still won't bow. Now, you might think that's paradoxical. What do you mean he will, but if he doesn't? You think that's paradoxical until you've prayed for your friend who has cancer, and you know this is exactly how we Christians pray. God, we know you're able, and God, we believe and know you will, but even if you don't, God, you'll get the glory, and we trust you no matter what. This is what it means to be courageous in the face of suffering and faithful. Is that we know our God is able. We believe that He will deliver us. But even if He doesn't, we know that ultimate deliverance, or as Paul says, to live as Christ and to die is gain. And that's what these men knew. Okay. They had courage, they committed to the truth. And I just want to point out here that these men had already been silenced, but this was their line. And I want you to think of this, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it for the sake of time, but think about it in, in our culture. They already could not speak openly the truth for fear of retribution, but now they were compelled to say that which was not true, and that was the line in the sand. It had gone beyond you telling me what I cannot say to telling me I must lie, and I must worship and praise that which I know has no worth or no worthiness of worship and praise. That was the line for them. And I have to imagine that for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they had already decided where their line was and they stood on it when the time came. Okay. Now, keep your thumb there and I'm just going to read 1 Peter as Peter continues. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So he starts in verse 13 here by saying that we should rejoice. Why? Because insofar as we share in the sufferings of Christ, we will also be rewarded by Christ. Now, this is a a massively popular and frequent and consistent doctrine of the New Testament, which is that there's a union and nearness that Christians experience with Jesus when we suffer. That it's supernatural And that it's actually baked in the cake of our Christian experience. Paul really believed this. He talks a lot about it in the epistles. It's like he said, when I suffer, there's a joy. It's a supernatural joy and a nearness that I have with Christ. And I share in the sufferings of Christ in this way. I want to make mention of this. In no way do I think that these apostles are saying that we suffer like Christ suffered or in the degree to which Christ suffered on the cross. No. It's that we suffer and share in the sufferings of Christ because we mirror Christ. In a small way, Christ's sufferings before a watching world, and he sustains us. He meets us there. Another way to put it is that we can endure with Christ because Christ suffered for us, and he will meet us there. We can endure for Jesus because he suffered for us, and he won't leave us alone. You see, to be marginalized or stigmatized or unaccepted or mocked for your faith is a painful thing. Or how about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be threatened? That's not fun. But there's an intimacy that is created that is almost unexplainable unless you've experienced it. And there is a reward that is promised for everyone as we withstand these trying moments. When we suffer, the spirit of the glory of God rests upon us. Okay, now let's turn back to Daniel. Let's read a little bit of what happens here. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Okay, I read that and I thought, well, he wasn't already filled with fury. Apparently it's a lot more because watch what he does. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. It seems overkill, right? Fire burns. (laughs) Why seven times hotter? This is just to show how angry and how anger leads to haste. And this guy is so mad. He's offended. And there's a lot to be learned from that, maybe most of all, that when you stand just simply to worship and honor God, in the face of people who believe that they are God, nothing makes them more angry. Nothing makes the prideful man more angry than you scorning his pride. (laughs) So what does he do? He orders some of the mighty men of the army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So legitimately, the guys who were just, it's their whole job just to throw people into the pit, they died that day. Total bummer, right? Right. It's like your boss just gets hasty and, and then you're like, oh man, you go in there scorched. And the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Okay. Something to think about here. Sometimes trial does not end as quickly, nicely, or neatly as we would expect or hope. Have you ever experienced that? put yourself in shadrach meshach and abednego's shoes they stand fiercely and courageously for god and you if it were a movie you would think that then the lord would show up you know if it were a cartoon you would think that then jesus the christophany of the old testament he would say and i'm with them you know and he'd stand up at that moment but instead what happens they start to get their hands tied imagine being them oh man they get thrown to the mighty men of the army. So like the strong guys show up, you know, Debo shows up and how he's going to start tying your hands up, tying your ankles together. It's rough. Not only that, but then you hear the king say, make the fire seven times as hot. You start smelling the smoke as you're waiting, you're doom. You might think all about, you know, that's so foreign to me, but... It's foreign to you, maybe in its intensity, but it's not foreign to you if you've ever suffered for a length of time that you felt was unjust. Because you probably have wondered, God, I'm, why is it that you're allowing this to tarry and go on? Why so long? Why so often? Why so much? Why is it that when one shoe drops, it's not that shoe, but then another shoe, and then another shoe, and then another shoe, and then, shoe, and then you're like, when is it ever going to stop? And suffering has a way of making idolatry seem enticing, doesn't it? Because if you feel like you're already at the bottom... And then you're threatened with idolatry or threatened with death. If you don't just follow after the idol, then you're like, well, what do I have to lose? I'm already at the bottom. And that's where Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were, right? They are now you're at the bottom. It's like, might as well cave now. They don't cave. And instead they get thrown into the fiery furnace. Now you guys know the story, but I love reading it because there's a lot of details here that are really interesting. Listen to verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose up in haste. I love that they use the same word. That's not accidental. In haste, he throws them in. In haste, he is risen from his feet to see and to spectate at the glory of God. He declared to his counselors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said, true, O king, we did. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. When we bind ourselves to Christ by faith, it doesn't matter how the world might try to keep us imprisoned, we are truly freed. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is true liber- liberty, and the intimacy that we experience when we face trial is found because Christ always meets us in the fiery trial and he protects us from the worst of harms to sustain us to the very end. I'm not saying that like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there weren't Christians that actually did get burned, but the worst harm that we, you and I could ever face has already been faced by Christ on the cross. And he has shielded and protected us from the worst judgment that we could ever have. So that now, even if we are to face hardship here on earth that is temporal, the eternal hardship that was coming for us has already been shielded by Jesus. And, and, and Jesus's very presence shows up when we suffer. The spirit of Christ rests upon those who are suffering. I don't know if you've ever read books like Fox's Book of Martyrs or others. There's all these stories of early saints who were martyred for their faith and how there were miraculous peace on their faces, singing songs as they were burned at the stake. Families, whole families going into the Colosseum singing worship songs. The apostles in the book of Acts leaving after having been beaten for preaching in the name, singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs because they were so honored to have suffered for the name of Jesus. That is supernatural. And it's the nearness of Christ. And then lastly, what I see in this particular portion is that when we endure and Christ is with us and the spirit of the glory of God rests upon us, there are always spectators watching. And those spectators are either put to shame or brought to Christ, always. You may have experienced this, or maybe you don't even know, but there are people who have watched you suffer in your life, and as you have trusted Christ through suffering, they themselves have been brought to the conclusion that something's different about you. Some people have called me and told me that. Now, I know myself, so I thought, I don't know what you saw, but it wasn't special well, you have to remember the most special thing about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's experience is not them, although they were very courageous. It's the fourth man that has an appearance like the, sons of the God, like the son of the gods in the midst of them. That's what really freaks them out. There's another guy in there. He's clearly unbound them and protecting them. And then, of course, for the sake of time, I can't go on, but what happens? They come out of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar says, only three of them come out. They don't see the fourth guy anymore, but they don't even smell like smoke. Their clothes aren't burned. Their hair's not even singed. And Nebuchadnezzar says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because these men, they did not, they did not give in at their time of testing, basically. And only their God could have saved them from this. And so he did. it's interesting, Nebuchadnezzar maybe misses it here. He turns the edict on its head and says, if you don't worship their God, I'll tear you limb from limb. He's the only true God. I'm like, well, you know, may have, may have been a little extreme, but all right, let's go for it, you know. But now he's so convinced that these, the God of these men is real, the only true God. And Nebuchadnezzar is a really interesting character we could spend a lot of time talking about. What's Peter's last admonition? He says this. In verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There's a lot of insight here. Persecution, hardship, trial would not be what they are if they did not present a credible threat to our well-being. And that's really true of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it's true of us too. It's always a credible threat that makes these things so powerfully effective. The reason Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were honored as courageous is not only because they stood for God, but they did so in the face of a very credible threat, a man who had the power to kill them, the king. And Peter teaches us that the essential move of the Christian is to lay our lives at the mercy of God and trust ourselves to him as creator. Peter says that he's a faithful creator. He is underlining and underscoring two major attributes of God. Number one, his trustworthiness, and number two, his powerful authority. Why do Christians want to entrust their souls to a faithful creator? Because ultimately when you have a credible threat on your head from someone who's in power, you are appealing to what? The highest power. That's why Jesus is called the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I lay myself at the feet of a faithful creator of a trustworthy, powerful King who made heaven and earth or all of the families of heaven. and Earth have been named by him. Guess who that includes Nebuchadnezzar. And so they lay their, their whole bodies at his feet and they trust. Now, here's the thing. And C.S. Lewis always had this in his mind when he writes the, the Narnia books with the card, you know, for the children. He's doing a great job of illustrating this. Aslan being a lion and often in his interactions with the children, he's still the king. And kings still have authority to make calls that you and I may not be okay with them making. Jesus makes calls in your life and in my life that we ask, couldn't you have done it another way? An example might be that, why did I have to suffer in order to learn patience? Can't you just impart patience? Everybody feels that way. And the answer is like, of course he can, but he's the king. When you appeal to the king, you're appealing because he's for your good when Nebuchadnezzar is not. You're not appealing because you always think he's going to see it your way. Sometimes he sees it the exact opposite of you. And this is why God says things like, I am not a man that I might lie. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not like your thoughts. So what do we do? We entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good because we trust that when his thoughts are not like our thoughts, that's the best possible scenario. And when his ways are not our ways, it's the best possible scenario, even when it feels like you can smell the smoke. As best as we can, we remain unmoved by threatening accusations, subversive tactics, and we keep our head down and our eyes up and do good for the glory of God. All right, I have one last thing and then we'll pray. The biggest question that I, that I find pastoring people is not that what I, all the things that I just said, you don't at least know at some level, even if it's the most like surface level, you know, these things are expected of us as Christians, but the hardship comes when you ask court, is he really with me in the fire? Because it doesn't feel that way. If I knew he was with me like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, maybe I'd be more courageous on the front end or in the middle of it. Or in hindsight, you say, I did all of that, and I got thrown into the fire, and I got scorched, and he never showed up. Here's what I'll say to that. I was, some of you know my story. My, my, my father and I were in a car accident when I was 12 years old, and so I, I was ejected from the vehicle of my, of my father's truck. And there was this period of time now that I have memory loss. Like, I don't remember from a certain point of the drive until being in the hospital. There's a lot of just, I don't remember anything. But all I've had to rely on was the eyewitness testimony of other people telling me what happened to me. Mostly the people who were behind us in other vehicles that saw what happened. One woman who was the closest right behind us, she said that I was ejected out of the vehicle, landed on the road, and skid into the ditch. And she and many other cars had to swerve not to hit me. And her testimony was that it was just an absolute miracle that I would even be alive. How does someone survive it? That was what she said. Now, I don't remember this. I don't have any memory of all of that happening. All I have is the effects of it. Scars. I woke up bleeding, hurting, pain, loss. No memory. But what is actually true, there was an invisible hand preserving me against any odds that I should even be alive, that there was a God who was there in the fire. Now, sometimes you only see the effects of his presence. And sometimes it's not until much later. Jesus said it like this. You don't see the spirit, but you see the leaves rustle and the wind blow. What you have to know, Christian, even if you're looking in hindsight or if you feel like you're in the fire now, is he is with you. And oftentimes he may just be carrying your unconscious body through the fire. And that's why you don't sense that he's there. It's because you're just in the dream. But the king is with you. When you look back and say, where were you, God? He was there, always there, always present, always sustaining. And one day when we see him face to face, you will know that he's been there much more prevalently than you could ever imagine. Working and weaving his purposes for your good and for his glory. And so I want to encourage you, you can stand and you can endure suffering because Christ is with you. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray. Jesus, we can be sure that you will not shy away from us in our suffering because you already endured the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you face down suffering and that you don't despise us when we're at our lowest. Thank you, Jesus, that you're with us. Your nearness, I ask, Holy Spirit, would you help us to experience your nearness in the taking of communion? that it would be more than just an act of repetition, but in the bread and in the wine that we would know that you are as near to us as this meal. As we sing, would you help us to be reminded that even when it smells like smoke that you have already blunted the end of the spear that was aimed at our hearts? And help us to say like Paul, Lord Jesus, to live as Christ, to die as gain, help us. Help us. Would you strengthen those who are weak and feeble this morning? Would you encourage those who are faint-hearted this morning, Holy Spirit? Would you admonish the idol right now, Lord, that are looking at the idols and saying, what do I have to lose? God, keep our eyes set on you. Strengthen us, Lord, not just for what is, but for what is to come.
1: We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.